Amen. Good morning. It's so wonderful to see you all here this morning. Thank you so much for your presence. So great to see all of our members here. And uh, it's so wonderful to see all of our many visitors and to have uh, those who join us online. We're so just thankful to have every single one of you with us this morning. We're going to continue in our study in Roman. We'll be in Romans chapter 8 today as we work through the book of Romans and this letter that Paul writes to this church in Rome, these Christians in Rome, uh, mixed of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and he said many things to him. And as in all of Paul's letters, they're, they're deep and they're, they're full, they're, they're thick and heavy books. And so we could certainly spend a long, long time going through the book of Romans. I love Romans, but uh, we're going to take, take a few things from chapter 8 today. And, uh, and then continue on next week. And I don't think I ever mentioned it, but if you're looking, wanting to look ahead and see what we're going to do week by week, we have a sheet in the back that will show you uh, the, the passages that we'll look at each week through this series. Now look at chapter 8, verse number 1. Paul writes what seems to be a summary sentence of everything he's been saying all up up to this point. It seems like he's, he leads up to this point, and in verse 1, it's like, and this is what I'm trying to say. This, this summarizes everything I've been saying in verse number 1, where he writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and, and listen to that verse while you remember from chapters 1 through 7, and he gets here to this point. And remember, he was just writing a letter. He didn't write chapter 8, verse 1. He just kept writing, and he gets to this point, and he says, there is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What, what an amazing and powerful and, and beautiful statement for him to say. It just summarizes everything. If he could end it there, that would be perhaps the closing sentence if he had chosen to do so. He's saying that neither the old law that he's been dealing with, he's been talking to them about, in particular the Jewish Christians, the, the old covenant, the law of Moses, that didn't do it, that couldn't save you, and, uh, and, and, and it can no longer condemn you. And sin cannot condemn you anymore. If you are in Christ, if you are a New Testament Christian, then, then there's no condemnation anymore. You're free. You're free from the curse and the condemnation of the law because you couldn't keep it. And you're free from the condemnation of sin because it was going to send you to hell. And you are free from the judgment and condemnation that both were going to give you. You are free in Christ. Through him, through baptism into Christ. They no longer have eternal power. They don't hold eternal power over you and your life anymore as long as you are living faithful in Christ. And then look at verse 2. Verse 2 is really the why of verse 1. So if we were to read verse 1 and ask, well, why? Then verse 2, uh, he, he, he says more about it. He helps us understand, for the law of the spirit of life 
has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. No matter what, in Christ you are free is what he's trying to say to us. Now verse 3 helps us understand even more about what Paul has been saying in regarding the old law and the new covenant. Look at verse number 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, remember we've been looking at this throughout, weakened by the flesh could not do. The law couldn't do this, but God did what the law couldn't do. And what did he do? He did two things, Paul tells us in verse 3. The first is by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And then what did he do? What's the second one? He condemned sin in the flesh. The law was not able to fully and finally deal with sin. And so it was designed, as we looked at, to be our guide to get us to Jesus. And, and, and then Jesus, through him, we can have our sin fully taken away, fully and finally. But look at what Jesus did for us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's important. Hebrews talks about this. We'll look at a couple of passages in Hebrews, but Hebrews doesn't word it in the way Paul words it here, where Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so Paul's putting an emphasis on our flesh, not, not this stuff that we see, but that fallen human sinful nature. Jesus came in the likeness of that nature but, but only in the likeness, right? Because he was without sin. And, and so the sinful flesh is what our problem is and what our problem was. And Jesus came to fix that problem, to offer the eternal solution. Hebrews 2.12 says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Remember we looked at that? For the sins of his people. And that's because now we can stand in the grace of God because of his propitiation for those who are in Christ. Hebrews 4.15, the author writes, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, he understands the weakness of your flesh. Jesus does. Why? Because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He understands what it's like to be you over the weekend. He understands what it's like to be you in your life right now. He knows. That's why he's our faithful high priest. Uh, he's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he came in the likeness of our flesh yet was without sin. So why did he have to come in the likeness of our flesh? Verse 3 answers it. For sin. He came for sin, to save us from our sins because of God's love for us. He came to deal with sin, to save us from sin. And when he did this, Paul writes that God condemned uh, sin in the flesh. He condemned sin. God judged sin and condemned it and set us free from that condemnation of sin. So what does that mean? Uh, Paul, When Paul wrote this, he begins by saying, for God has done these things. So it's God who did these two things. God's the one that sent his son in the likeness of flesh. And God is the one who through the sacrifice of his son condemned sin for us 
so that he can make peace between us through his son. Powerful, powerful things that Paul is saying. But let's look at verses 4 through 8 now. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 4 through 8, he, he, continuing in the sentence here in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So now you hear the, the first time he's making this comparison, this contrasting between spirit and flesh. So listen to that uh, as we read these verses. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that's, that's uh, let's see, that finishes verse 8. So Paul's showing us that the contrast here is now between the flesh and the spirit. See, your mind is set on one of those things. And your mind and your walk is sending you in one of those directions. The things after the flesh, and in chapter 6 he dealt with that and talked about how he wrestled with it himself in chapter 7. You're either walking down that way according to the flesh or your mind is set on the spirit and you're walking down that way. And so I'm so glad he just talks straight to us and lets us know that if your mind is set on the flesh, it ends in death. And that's not just physical death. That's this eternal and physical death. And that's the direction you're going if that's what your mind is on. And sometimes we can be hard-hearted and hard-headed and we just need the Bible. Just, just tell me what you're trying to tell me. And that's what Paul's doing. He's telling us, look, get it. Get this straight. You're going one way or another. But if your mind is set on the Spirit, then you're, you're walking in the light as He is in the light. You're, you're, you're walking in the righteousness of God and your home is in heaven and he's helping them to understand it's that simple it's one or the other the mind verse 6 says set on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace and what is what does he mean by that word life that word life the greek word there is not just talking about your mere physical existence that's not what it means what he's saying there, if we were the original hearers, we would hear it that way as soon as we heard the word. Life and peace. He's talking about this abundant life, the life that only a Christian can know because they are in Christ. They know that they have eternal life. They know that they have salvation and forgiveness. And they know they stand in the grace of God and they have peace with God. And only the Christian can know that. And that's the life that he's talking about. He's not talking about uh, these health and wealth blessings of, of possessions and all this kind of thing. That's not what he means. He's talking about true, full life in Christ, being fully alive in Christ, now and beyond when we leave these physical bodies. And in verse 7 he says, When you surrender your mind to the flesh instead of the spirit... You set yourself up for a dangerous and bad fall. 
And it's sad to see because you can get out there down that road of your mindset on the flesh and chasing after the things of the world. You can get down that road so far and so stuck in the junk of sin in this world that you can lose your, your desire to even fight and struggle against it. So Paul's saying you're going one way or another and he's letting us know don't go that way according to the flesh because you get down that road and get stuck and you might not make it back. Think about it. You might not, you might get down, you don't know how you're going to feel when you're caught up in the thing that you're caught up with and you may no longer want to fight against it and resist and instead you give yourself over to that thing. Does that make sense? And he's saying just don't even go there. Don't go down that road. Don't turn that corner. Don't go that direction. Keep your mind set on the flesh, on the spirit and not on the flesh. It doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be you to be a statistic to fall away from God. It doesn't have to be you to be that statistic who when you graduate high school that you're going to fall away from God and live a, a, a life that you know isn't what God wants for you. You don't have to be that person. That doesn't have to be your story. Your story can be one of a full, vibrant life of faith in Christ as you walk with him throughout the rest of your life. You don't have to go that way. So just because everybody else does doesn't mean you have to. Just because your family does doesn't mean you have to. Just because your, your friends do doesn't mean you have to. Just because you want to and your flesh wants to and is curious doesn't mean you have to. And Paul urges us, go this way instead of that way. Now turn with me to verse, verses 9 through 11. And let's read what Paul writes here. You, however, are not in the flesh. See how he's continually pointing them to the life, a life in the Spirit. You're not in the flesh. Why? Because he's writing to Christians. They're already baptized in Christ. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now that's important. And then he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So I want you to know something that's that's not only very amazing here, but very important that you understand that a New Testament Christian literally has the Spirit of God dwelling, residing in them. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, some don't believe that, and they believe that the Spirit is essentially just the Word that we have, but that doesn't reconcile with what we just read in the Bible, when Paul wrote, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the only thing that can mean. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you want to reject the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then you are saying, I don't belong to God. Because the Bible says, if you belong to God, He's in you. Well, how did He get there? Acts 2.38, He got there when you were baptized into Christ and you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So, so the, the, the fear is that, it's, that someone's going to be charismatic and say that there's new revelation and new truth and, and, and all of these things and I can prophesy and, and, and all this. That's not what the Bible's teaching. The Spirit uses, the, 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 the Spirit's sword is the Word of God, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6. And so what he uses in your life is the Word of God. The Spirit in you is never going to take you outside the bounds of Scripture and never go beyond Scripture. And there's no new revelation. What we have is the Word of God. The Spirit in you testifies and shows that you belong to God. And so when he returns, when Jesus returns, that's who he's looking for. He's going to scan the crowd with that blue light, so to speak, figuratively speaking, and find people who have the Spirit in him, and that's who his people are. That's who his church is. Now, Paul also shows us that the Christian doesn't need the law to live righteously. This is a big point for those Jewish Christians there. So he's saying... Because they believed you had to follow the law to be righteous. If you don't have a law, then how can you obey it and how can you be righteous? And he's saying, we don't need the law anymore. It's ineffective. It couldn't deal with sin. Jesus did that and he gave us his spirit to dwell in us. And that's how we live righteously because his spirit is in us. Does that make sense? So it's not about following the law. It's about the spirit in me. And I want to be led by the spirit, walk in the spirit, as he would say in Galatians 5. And I want to have my mind set on spiritual things. He's contrasting those two things. The, the Christian doesn't need the law to live righteously. He has the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul didn't explain anything more than that. Well, how does he reside in us? And, and what a, and, and, but I've got this question. Paul didn't tell us anymore. He didn't seem too concerned to tell us much more and to answer all of our questions. But what we do know is that he's in us if we're in Christ. Then Christ is in us, as he says. And we are to walk in the Spirit and, and follow him and be, have our minds set on spiritual things and not of the flesh. Verse 10, he says, but if Christ is in you, so there's an interchangeableness there, even though they're not the same thing. But it shows us that when we become Christians, we are intimately tied to Jesus when, by Paul saying, Christ in you. That shows the intimacy of the relationship you have as a Christian. The Holy Spirit of God is in you. And he says, Christ in you and you in Christ. John 15, Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. Now let's move on to verses 12 through 16. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, in fact, Paul tells us that by the, it's by the Spirit we put to death the sinful flesh, which he discussed in chapter 6. What I want to point out here is that when you have the Spirit in you, then you can pray to God, Abba, Father, because God is your Father. Your earthly father 
may not be all that. And in fact, no matter how good of a father he is, he's not. And you may have not even know who your father is. It doesn't matter where you are at on the spectrum. You can have a heavenly father, a perfect, loving father who cares for you, looking out for you. And that's who God is. And by the Spirit in you, you can cry out to him in prayer, Abba, Father. And that, that alone expresses the intimacy of the relationship that you have. You can take anything to him in prayer. You say, well, I, but, but I can't go talk to him about what I did. I, I can't talk to him about what I'm thinking about. I, I can't talk to him about what happened. And the Bible says, yes, you can. Why? Because you're his child. And he wants you coming to him to tell him anything and everything because he loves you, his child. He, he sacrificed his son to make you his child. And, and, and that's how you can pray to God. Now, let's, let's move on to 18 verses, uh, verses 18 through 25. And this is a different, different kind of section of, of uh, verses here. But I'll read through this real quickly and make a, make a quick comment. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together uh, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So basically, Jesus, uh, Paul is personifying the world, creation. He's personifying it and saying that because of sin, because of the broken, corrupt uh, world that we live in, broken by sin, decaying because of sin, destroyed by sin, that even the world grows. That it's that bad that even creation... ...think important, but Paul says nothing about heaven being recreated on earth here. He's personifying earth and saying that...
As long as he's there, that's where I want to be. And so that's something that I, that's what I want you to encourage you to take away from that. Not that that's not an important subject. Most importantly is, are you going to be with God on the day of judgment? Uh, no matter what that looks We want to be your sinful flesh. You sometimes, it can be so bad, hurt so bad, you can feel so lost, you can feel so confused, you don't even know what words to use. But you need to go in prayer knowing that the Holy Spirit can groan for you to God and communicate on your behalf to your Father through by which you call Abba Father. See, see, some of us need to do some groaning. You hadn't groaned in a while. You hadn't gone to God in prayer. You're not spending enough time in prayer to even get any words out, much less some groaning about how things are going in your life. It's okay to not have all the answers in your prayer. That's what prayer is about. You're communicating with God, and you need to let the Spirit do some groaning on your behalf to help you. That's how God uses His Holy Spirit in your life, to help you in your weaknesses. And look, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. See, we want to we put that on every coffee mug and T-shirt and every sticker and social media post, but we take it out of context because how does Paul use it? He uses it for the person who's in prayer so much that the Spirit communicate to God. That's who, that, that, he, right after he said that, he said, and, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. See, see how, did, how is it you want everything to work out the way you want it to, and that's not what that's teaching, but you can't be over here praying and groaning to God. What you need to be doing, you're going to work this out. And no matter how it works out, let me be faithful. that because in Philippians 4.13 this I is for us who can be against us 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also uh, with him graciously give us all things? Talk to God is what Paul's saying. Go to him in prayer. Communicate with God. He As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as... through him who loved us who for i am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present things present persecution those aren't who's those are what's you from the love of God that is you or any of these little from the love of God What he's never going to.